economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs of Lady Melody Baker. I'm singing down the Dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Tony Hastrop. Tony is a senior lecturer in international politics at the University of Stirling in Scotland. Her research broadly explores the nature of global power hierarchies in knowledge and practice between the global north and south. She has researched topics such as the African Union, EU relations with Africa, feminist foreign policy, and the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. I will try to discuss most of these issues with her in the coming 20 to 30 minutes. Welcome to the podcast, Tony. Thanks so much for having me here. It's a pleasure. So my first question is, what was the first sports team you ever supported? I believe it was the Nigerian football team, the Super Eagles. So I remember the 94 African Cup of Nations, which we won. And I have a vague recollection of our qualification to the World Cup. But I very much remember the atmosphere at home. And then because I have some family in North London, I'm a supporter of Arsenal for all my sins and despite the many years of disappointment. But that makes it only stronger. Uh, (laughs) So what is your favorite political song? I don't do favorites too well, but I like Fela Kuti, who's Mm -hmm. a Nigerian Afrobeat musician. You know, I think Fela spoke to Nigerian conditions as much as he spoke to Pan-African solidarity, as well as colonialism. I probably like a few political songs that I don't even realize that they're political, but I would say that I really liked the soundtrack of Ava DuVernay's The 13th. So like the songs from Common called mm-hmm. Letter to the Free, as well as the one from Usher called Chains. It's a good collection. And finally, what is your favorite political book? So again, no favorites, but I thought of a few (laughs) that I would say, I guess, are political and I quite like them. So I guess my earliest memory of a political book is Wally Shoinka's memoir of his 22-month incarceration by the Nigerian government called The Man Died. And then I liked, from my undergrad years, a book called We by Evgeny Zamayatin, and it's a dystopian book, and I understand has been the precursor to the more famous dystopian novels by Huxley and Orwell and co. Oh. I also like, and I've sort of rediscovered, Amy Césaire's Discourse on Colonialism. And finally, I guess, because I use this quite a bit for my teaching, I quite like Angela Davis's Women, Race and Class. Well, that was almost a whole syllabus. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for that. Now, when I contacted you, you said that you could speak to various issues, but you also said I could speak about interesting shows I watched recently (laughs) and the international security lessons slash implications. Yes. So give me an example. So I happened on it because I'd been watching Line of Duty. I don't know if you know this show. It's British procedural, but it's mostly about corrupt police, which, Mm -hmm. you know, is if you're gluten for pain, watch it. (laughs) Really interesting. And at the end of the most recent season, one of the actors in it was going to be in another show called Vigil. 
And I thought he's a fantastic actor, so I thought I must watch it. And then I forgot all about it. And then it's recently come on TV. And Vigil starts out with a death on a submarine. And this submarine is carrying UK nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not going to ruin it for anyone who's listening to this. But this show is about nuclear weapons. And it really asks a lot of interesting questions like, what is security? Security for whom? How do we police the police, so to speak? You know, who watches the watchers in a way? And so in weeks where I'm talking about things like the security dilemma and who has nuclear weapons, it came in very useful because I could refer my students now, we will talk specifically on European relations to Africa or EU relations to Africa, which, of course, go back many centuries mm-hmm. and are steeped in colonialism. Various European countries had colonies in Africa, including Belgium, Britain, France, Portugal. And these African countries, on average, only became independent in the post-war period. How have the relations developed since independence? You know, it's actually quite useful to go back a bit to just before independence, if we mark independence to be around 1960. So I always go back to 1957, and I start with the Treaty of Rome. So the Treaty of Rome, 1957, this is the eve of independence for most African countries. And this treaty is said to be the basis for the European Union. You'd expect it then as a treaty to focus on Europe and what's happened in Europe and how Europe is going to evolve. And it does, but not without also talking about these countries that will soon be independent. Now, the language of the treaty is one that is couched in a benevolent sort of, we won't leave you behind (laughs) and you're our responsibility. And this is very much, as you can imagine, pushed by France, very much supported by Belgium. And then some people would argue that reluctantly, but nevertheless supported by Italy, the Netherlands, Germany, and of course, Luxembourg. This then becomes the basis for EU-Africa relations. And I think often, especially on the European side, when we're narrating the history of this relationship and the evolution of this relationship, we don't go back enough to 1957. And I would say this is something that is being rediscovered and being excavated again. When the UK joined, it was not a member at the beginning, but when it joined, it kind of brought along its own colonies into this sort of framework that over the years became known as the EU-ACP relations. ACP stands for African, Caribbean and Pacific countries, which of course is where all the former colonies were and Mm -hmm. and the the UK had the uh, largest amount of them. As you can imagine, if this is the genesis of the relationship, although the EU itself was never a colonizer, and so the narrative over time is, you know, we are not our member states. What our member states did is in the past, problematic and very much in the past, we're doing something new. But the EU cannot exist without its member states, even if the institutions themselves have certain levels of agency. So I've argued in my own work that the relationship is very much built on the edifice of a colonial relationship. And I think, interestingly enough, when the EU proclaims that the relationship with Africa must change, it is reinforcing that point that it is based on this edifice of colonialism, (laughs) even though it tries not to admit that at the same time. And so over the years, we've had this sort of 
yes, we want to change the relationship because it's asymmetrical. So you'll hear the term asymmetrical all of the time. You'll hear terms like we want to build more equality. We want to build in more partnership. And every few years, whether it's seven years, whether it's a decade, there's always a big conversation about what is we're going to talk about at some big summit. And at the end of it, there's a big framework document. So in 2000, we had a massive one, which is supposed to be the Cotonou Agreement, encompasses a range of issues, economics, politics, human rights. And, you know, we're supposed to be where the African countries, they arrive on the scene. They can exercise their own agency in the context of this relationship. To my mind, we saw a bit of change, but not significantly enough, at least not the sort of ones that African elites and indeed African people and people like myself would expect, given the way that the EU positions itself in the world. In 2007, you had this joint Africa-EU strategy, which was supposed to reorient the relationship from, you know, one that was like all the EU and all of the colonies to sort of EU-Africa, specifically region to region, on equal terms, even if we accept that, you know, these two entities are not actually equal within the sort of global order. Mm -hmm. And the joint Africa-EU strategy is, you know, I had a lot of hope for it and a lot of my PhD was based on it. And with respect to security, I think you can sort of see areas where Africans were able to articulate certain levels of agency just because it was security. But by and large, I don't think he sort of moved beyond that. And now we've just had another whole conversation about what happens post, you know, the 2000 Kutonu meetings were delayed. Summit has been delayed, of course, by COVID and there's ostensibly a new agreement that is still within that AC. CP rubric, but one that is supposed to have sort of differentiated attention to Africa, to the Caribbean, to the Pacific. There's much to say about, you know, what actually happens in the context of that relationship. So we'll see. Right. So you already mentioned security, which has particularly since 9-11 been a major issue in European politics, but also in EU-Africa relations. And you said that with that regard, some African countries have at least been able to show some agencies. How are these relations defined and whose security is being discussed? Right. I think that's a really good question. I think it depends on who it is that, you know, <laughs> you're asking. So if you look at the ways in which the EU supports security in the Gulf of Aden, so in the Horn of Africa, it's done that through sort of maritime, maritime security support. And on the one hand, you could say, yes, it might help Somalis if it means that pirates don't get to the food and it can actually get there to support food security. But to my mind, this was about the EU trying to prove that it can actually take on some of the security tasks. And then if we shift from the Horn of Africa to the Sahel, this is an area where you now see a lot of EU presence in the context of all EU foreign and security policies, but certainly in Africa. And in this context, the EU supports the G5 Sahel, primarily with respect to both maritime security, but especially counterterrorism. Now, in this sense, one could argue that there is overlapping security interests, right? African countries are also concerned with terrorism. They're concerned about the implications of terrorism within their own borders, but also in terms of cross-border. But by and large, some have also argued that although the EU might be concerned about counterterrorism, it's not actually concerned about terrorism from here coming to Europe. What it's concerned about is that if terrorism or what is called terrorism 
makes people in those regions insecure, then we'll see greater movements of people into Europe. And that the EU definitely, definitely does not want. And what we know also is that migration, or at least the way that the EU perceives of migration now, is not necessarily the same way that African countries will perceive of migration right. uh, for, I think, quite obvious reasons. And so I think, you know, we can look at it both ways. We can see where the overlaps are, but we can also see that in terms of practice, they're not necessarily on the same page. I mean, here I'm focusing especially on the countries of the Sahel, but also other countries like Nigeria, but also Algeria. So you already mentioned immigration, which of course is extremely securitized. But over the last few decades, the EU has increased the number of what they call safe third countries, and particularly within the Mediterranean context, including the north of Africa. What effect does this kind of anti-immigration policy of the EU have on African countries? From my perspective, and I, I'm sure that, you know, if you were to ask this of, say, a policymaker, they might have another answer because part of what the EU does in terms of this safe countries is that it gives money to whatever the elite in the country is to take care of the problem, so to speak. So in that sense, money coming in actually, you know, could work well for the government or the, whatever agency is responsible. But I'm mostly concerned about the people that this agencies in this country, this elites are supposed to be protecting and responsible for, mm -hmm. which are the people. In establishing, for example, the kind of connections that the EU has established in places like Libya, yeah. formulating its policies in this way, for me, has engendered things like slave markets of Black Africans who are coming through, because they definitely do the EU's bidding, and it works for them as well to keep people back. But in keeping people back, of course, they're not in the EU. So the EU might feel that, you know, this is not its problem because it's not the one treating these Africans badly, but it's facilitating their treatment. So we know, for example, based on research, but also anecdotal evidence that it's the same agencies and the same elites that are being paid that are also facilitating the smuggling, right? <laughs> right. So, and of course, you know, let's not forget the role of some EU member states in where we are with respect to Libya today. So Absolutely. highly problematic. And the other 53 African countries, they, they're watching, you know, it's, it's not that they're blind to this. And you've seen like in sort of successive summits since 2015, this is an issue that is brought up where the African position is mostly this whole third country thing is highly problematic, not the least because when you came up with the plan. You didn't really consult any African countries and it's been rebuffed by countries like Tunisia and Algeria. But you need to facilitate safer routes. Like you cannot have a policy that says someone cannot get in a plane to claim asylum, but then sort of say, oh, it's unsafe to go through water and you just have to be held back. So they certainly think it's a problem, but how they see it as a problem, I think is different. <laughs> and for the responses, I think are also proposed responses are different. Now, in both cases, security and immigration, in what way do we really speak about EU policy rather than individual policy? If you think, for example, about Libya, the policies were initiated by Italy. And if you think about counterterrorism, what France does in Chad seems to be completely devoid of any interest or action of any other country. So in what way is the EU, qua EU, an actor, or is it just the broader vehicle of individual countries in the region? 
I think we need to think about those two things in parallel. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, France in Chad don't really have anything to do with the EU per se. At the same time, you know, you can make the same argument about France in Mali, for example. But we also know that there's an EU mission, which may be dominated by the French, but it's completely EU in the sense that there are other member states that are involved in the mission in Mali that trained Malian soldiers who then eventually had a coup. So, you know, <laughs> whose problem is that? It's France, but it's more than France. Right. Um, and, you know, when you think about Italy, for example, Italy and Spain, very involved in Niger. And I'm talking involved in terms of bilateral support, involved in supporting rewriting laws so that it's stricter in terms of movements in West Africa. But we also know that this is facilitated by the European Union. It's facilitated by the delegation, by working with embassies on the ground. So certainly it is the case that security is quite intergovernmental and and defense even much more so. But if we're focusing on security specifically, countries collaborate and they definitely collaborate under the umbrella of the EU. And the EU, and here I'm talking about the commission especially, they don't have their hands clean either. There are agents of the commission that are working to facilitate the interests of member states, which I guess in theory is their job. Right. So in a recent working paper, you asked and answered the question whether the EU is a feminist actor. What does that exactly mean? And what was the answer to this question? I guess the answer was yes, maybe, and no. (laughs) Um, I think the EU has a lot of programs that focus on things like, you know, women's empowerment, gender equality, programs and approaches that acknowledge the intersection of oppressive systems on the lives and livelihoods of women, which then obviously causes inequality. And I think these are all things that feminist researchers, activists have been asking for international institutions institutions and international actors to pay attention to. And so in that sense, one could argue that, you know, the EU is a feminist actor because it is acting out on certain feminist principles. Yet I think feminism is much more than just doing stuff to help women. It's about wanting to dismantle the systems that uphold inequality so that everyone could be emancipated and that men, women, people who don't identify as either And I'm not convinced that the EU is invested in dismantling any of the systems, the sort of gendered systems. And in a sense, the basis for the EU itself depends very much on some of those oppressive systems. And here I'm kind of looking at things like capitalism and neoliberalism and sort of the global hierarchies that allow the EU to maintain its position in the world. And certainly coloniality is not compatible with the sort of feminist aspirations that I align with. So I think where you also see EU member states being explicitly anti-feminist It's really difficult to sort of say the EU as a whole is a feminist actor. But that is not to suggest that there aren't actors within the EU who are motivated by feminist principles. Now, you've also argued that feminist foreign policy is very white. Now, why is this the case? Is this mainly a consequence of liberal colorblindness or more of illiberal racism? Hmm. I think it can be both. (laughs) So if I take a step back, 
Family and foreign policies could constitute a field. And by that, I mean, you know, the declaration of family and foreign policy by Sweden itself was followed swiftly by sort of the growth in the scholarship around feminist foreign policy. And then that came back into the actual practice of feminist foreign policy as we sort of see feminist foreign policy spread. So in a sense, there's the feminist foreign policy of what states actually do. And then there's the stuff that we say about feminist foreign policy and we do about feminist foreign policy. And if we look at the field of those who actually study feminist foreign policy and the majority of those states who say they do feminist foreign policy, they're mostly countries in the global north. And I guess depending on sort of your ontological perspective, I would say the basis for a lot of the states is one that's embedded in whiteness. But beyond that, since 2014, it's not just been Sweden, right? So soon after Sweden, Canada declares feminist development policy. France has sort of declared sort of feminist diplomacy and Luxembourg says it has a feminist foreign policy. But, you know, no offense to Luxembourg, but (laughs) what countries actually care or are impacted by the foreign policies of Luxembourg? So when Luxembourg talks about its foreign policy, it's not looking at the U.S. doesn't really care about Luxembourg's foreign policy. But countries that might benefit from aid that Luxembourg gives might wonder about what the feminist foreign policy is. And this is what you find across the board, that a lot of what these countries call feminist foreign policy very much target countries in the global south. And for me, there's kind of this assumption that, you know, we're doing it well, we're good with it. So now we're going to go forth and do feminist foreign policy to you. And I mean, when we look at Canada now, there's, I guess, a sort of acknowledgement that this is a problem with the sort of feminist international development policy. And there's a proper conversation about having a holistic feminist foreign policy. So one of the questions that I've asked in my work is if Canada is truly supposed to be a moral authority on feminist foreign policy, what is it doing about the indigenous women who keep getting murdered within its own borders? To what extent does the sort of domestic conditions speak to the international? That said, I think that it's important not to only give space to these countries because there's other countries that are doing really interesting work. And here, I want to, you know, Mexico has also declared a feminist foreign policy where you can tell that there's been a lot of engagement across the board in the country with both the internal dynamics of wanting a society that is transformed and underpinned by the principles of feminism internally, and that that's what then gets projected externally. So it sort of goes hand in hand. And I think that that's really important. But as long as you sort of build these hierarchies into how feminist foreign policy is supposed to work, then there will be, I think, that element of whiteness. And to the extent to which it's on the one hand, yes, it is colorblind. But on the other hand, I do think that a lot of countries know exactly what it is that they're doing. So Justin Trudeau can want feminist foreign policy for Canada, but then is happy to buy weapons and give weapons to Saudi Arabia, despite what we know about women in Saudi Arabia. (laughs) As did Sweden. Exactly. (laughs) So, but what can they do? I mean, leaving aside domestically, obviously they should live up to their own principles. And that would also make them much more credible international actors if they would actually live up to it. But at the same time, are there countries with feminist foreign policies in the global south that are being marginalized because of the way that the North approaches it? Or is that simply not available? Because to a certain extent, Sweden cannot really help being very white, given that it is still a very white country, right? So my point is a bit, so what should they do? How can the global North be a more equal partner to the global South yet advance an agenda which might not be overly popular among at least the leaders of a lot of countries in the global South? 
Right. So I kind of have two answers to this. One is, you know, and you might have thunder strike me dead just now. The first (laughs) is I don't actually think any state can have a feminist foreign policy in the way that I'm talking about, because the fundamentals of a state system is such that it would always be interested in the state first. And for me, feminism is very much about solidarity. So in an ideal world, we wouldn't even have a state system. But as you said, we have what we have now and we're working within that. And I actually think personally that both Sweden as well as Canada have really started to reckon with, you know, what's gone wrong from our initial declaration to now, which is engaging precisely those people who are supposed to be recipients of this feminist foreign policy. And from that, they might begin to see and they have begun to see that, you know, you're not importing feminism to these areas. There are initiatives and there are priorities that feminists in these spaces already want. And to what extent are you actually attending to them? To what extent are you attending to feminists, say from First Nations communities in Canada, if you want to learn about, you know, peace building, for example, have you actually consulted those people who are marginalized within your own population? And perhaps that can actually inform your own foreign policy approach to other marginalized people. So it's things like that. And over time, one could expect that your thinking around what foreign policy actually is might then change. And for me, feminist foreign policy is basically what we call it. Yeah. And if you think of it in those terms, then yes, this countries can become good feminist foreign policy actors, understanding that it will be gradual. It's not just about sort of having a document that says, yay, we are feminist foreign (laughs) policy actors. And that's us done. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. So finally, what is the greatest misunderstanding about EU-Africa relations? I mean, there are a few, but I guess one big one is that the EU itself obviously did not colonize African countries and drawing on approaches that sort of center colonialism and the implications of colonialism, a lot of EU studies scholars think it's irrelevant. And I think that it's a bit problematic to do that. And I think if we pay more attention to, again, that relationship between the EU and Africa as actually being quite constitutive of the EU as an external relations actor rather than just a tiny subfield of EU external relations, we might begin to actually learn a bit more. So in general, I think there's still a big gap, I guess, in knowledge of EU external relations and paying a bit more attention to EU-Africa relations and being open to sort of this more critical approaches would be useful, I think, all around, really. Thank you. And I totally agree and confess to it myself. I had actually barely ever thought about EU-Africa relations before this interview. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Tony. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a lot of fun. If you want to know more about Tony Hastrop, you can check out her page at the departmental website of the University of Stirling, and you can follow her on Twitter at, at Tony Hastrop. Thank you for listening to Radical. The music is from the Gonads, with the classic song Karl Marx supported Millwall. I want to thank Jack Fernandez for helping me with the editing, and I'm your host, Kas Mudde. If you like the episode, please subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice, and don't forget to rate us. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling, they say it's at its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain, and before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell, he went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker, I'm seeing Dan the Dunker, playing with his beard. No wonder that that's Captain Tauto, that